and welcome to the second episode of the SLB podcast. I'm Neil McMillan, president of the SLB Cooperative. And once again, I'm joined by Jeff Jordan, also of the Co-op SLB and Leicester University. episode, Jeff and I talked a bit about his blogging and social media presence, which he's uh, given up. His new book with Mike Long, TBLT, and our online tutored course. And we talked a little bit about SLA, in particular Mike Long's view of second language acquisition, and also about Nick Ellis and emergentism. Jeff, I thought today... Well, first, Jeff, hello. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Neil. I'm fine, thanks. Good. We left things talking about emergentism last time, and I thought I would pick up this time because we had some questions via Twitter from followers of the cooperative, and one of them was about SLA, and it's from uh, Peter Pun, who goes under the name ELT Planning on uh, on Twitter, and he wants to know what your second language acquisition select 11 would be so i think he's thinking about a football team and i wondered whether maybe we'd better make it a five aside <laughs> who would be your top five people to to read or to investigate in second language acquisition well let's see now um i think a very accessible start is nina spada and lightbound that's it, Sparta and Lightbound. And not light brown like many people seem to say. No, no. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good and very accessible book. So I would definitely recommend that. And, and that's uh, how languages are learned. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So and then I know we've, we've plugged it to death, but I would, I still think, as I've said before, that Mike Long's book, Second Language Acquisition and Task-Based Language Teaching, is uh, the best book on language teaching currently available. It's mm. uh, thorough, uh, convincing, and marvellous. So that would be... Mike Long would certainly be there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I really don't like Rod Ellis much at all. I think that his doorstop book on second language acquisition, which is required reading in so many master's programs, is appalling. Almost as bad as Jeremy Harmer's book on English language teaching. Um, well, no, that's not fair. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. Is it? No, no. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just... it's it. The problem with Ellis is he's rather eclectic and um, not always terribly thorough and always very long-winded and uh, I, I think not so good. What I'm getting at is that he recently came out with a book with a co-author. Is that Shintani? That's right. 
And I kind of, <laughs> rather stupidly, of course, uh, resisted getting it because um, I'm kind of anti-Rod Ellis. But in fact, I think it makes a very good, very readable introduction to instructed SLA. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with all of it, and but it's pretty reliable and worth reading. So I would recommend it. It's exploring language pedagogy through second language acquisition research. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you say, it's by Ellis, Rod Ellis that is, and Natsuko Shintani. Okay, and would you see that as, as similar to the light bone and well no uh, because it's particularly aimed at exploring language pedagogy okay the sparta and light bound is a good introduction to theories of second language learning this is far more focused on what we can learn about teaching from second language acquisition research Mm-hmm. And as I say, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. It's very readable and very, yes, it's, it's, it's accessible and, and fairly rigorous. Um, as I say, I, 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 I can hear that there are two voices <laughs> and I think um, it's one of the, I wouldn't be surprised if Shintani did most of the work, you know, it's um, okay. one of those efforts where... The, 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 the well-known one uh, puts his name on it and the other one does lots of the work. It's a bit like our TBLT course then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did all the work and you just put, all your, you just put your name on it. Exactly, I'm exactly. Just, That's, joking, of course. Uh, <laughs> but that, it does happen a lot, as, as everybody knows. You've got any, you know, um, when you see some two authors and one of them's famous... You can be pretty, and the other one isn't. You can be pretty sure who did most of the work. Uh, and it, uh, I, I, as I say, I resisted it. I, I thought I'd get it just so I could take pot shots at it. But I, I was quite um, impressed. Okay. And after that, I think I would have to say these days that something on emergentism, and I think I would recommend Nick Ellis. Uh, you know, I, I don't agree with emergentism I, I don't think it has proved its case at all and i think it's a way off and and maybe it won't but it's very interesting and it's a sort of thing that we ought to get up, uh, that we all teachers ought to be informed about nick ellis is a, a very good academic he his writing is a little bit dense but quite he, he writes very well he's got a nice style but it's um you know it's pretty academic but mm. I would recommend, now, what I'm not quite sure is which one. He, he's very prolific. He, he keeps coming out with new stuff. There is that, uh, that article about the interface between explicit and implicit. or Yes, um, well, that's exactly... Tricky, but... That, of course, is the key issue, or one of the very key issues, I think, precisely for language teachers to try to get a handle on this, that second language learning, adult second language learning, is by default, like for everybody else, and all other sorts of language learning, um, implicit. But second language uh, learners, if they're adults, need help. And it's precisely that interface, what sort of help they need, rather than 
crowding out the time with teacher talking about the language, we should still emphasize implicit learning mostly, but the really important question is how can we help uh, with the explicit bits? And Nick has, uh, as we talked about last time a bit, a very interesting take on this. So um, I, I would go for one of his articles in one of the journals. Okay, great. Uh, so how many is that? That's Lightbound and Spada, Ellis, Shintani, Mike Long is, makes five, Nick Ellis makes six. Yeah, I think um, I'm quite fond of Truscott stuff. Uh, <laughs> the Mike's book, which has got a 500-page references list in it, and I see there's not one for Truscott. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously a bit too rad <laughs> Mike doesn't like him but I think Truscott has some good uh, stuff to say now again what would we recommend you know who I'm talking about don't you there? I do but I'm not that familiar what was, what's Truscott's um, he's very much against course books Okay. now we have to be careful here the ones that we've given I think again are mostly men and there are of course uh, Nina Spada and, and Patsy um, Lightbound, no, she, and, and women, two yeah. women. <laughs> yes, I think Susan Gass has written some very good stuff. Again, I'm not always in agreement with her, but I think she's a very good, competent academic who says some interesting stuff. So I would perhaps add her to the list, Susan Gass, and one of my own real favourites who unfortunately she's her own sort of worst enemy in a way because she's quite difficult to read. Uh, Suzanne Carroll. Uh, one of the best books I've ever read on SLA is her Input and Evidence. Mm -hmm. a, a tremendous uh, tour de force. She talks a lot to Kevin Gregg and Kevin has a lot of um, good things to say about her. Um, her theory of SLA is extremely interesting uh, and I think under-acknowledged because it's, 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 it's pretty damn difficult. She's partly a very interesting combination of Chomsky's uh, influence and other people's, but I would, uh, she would certainly be in my, uh, in my tea. <laughs> okay. uh, I think she's great. And I would imagine, I'd imagine Kevin Gregg would get in your team as well. Well, of course he would. Kevin Gregg would be would be the number ten. Uh, he'd be the right. Wait a minute. Let's talk about positions because. Well, I don't know enough about football. I'll, I'll, help, I'll help you. Let's count. We've got all right nine. Um, well, nine aside. <laughs> well, let's think. Um, well, how many are in a football team? Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> too much time at uh, too much time playing posh games, Jeff. <laughs> um, so um, let's think now. Who should we include? Who? Well, what do you reckon? Um, let's let's stick with nine. I, I don't care. Oh, we, okay. we don't have to get eleven. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just fine. to make up the numbers. Me, me and you can, me and you can join. In. Yeah, I'm sure when I think about it, I think, oh God, I would have, I, I missed out so and so, and I wouldn't have. Who, who would be in the goalkeeping position, or who's, who's the kind of gatekeeper, uh, or who would be a defender of of uh, of SLA among that? 
list. I think Mike will probably... I mean, uh, it really, he ought to be the striker. He'd be absolutely livid. <laughs> Put him in goal. But, <laughs> uh, you know, he likes to... And, of course, he has done so much. But I think... Well, mate, you know, again, uh, who better than Kevin, really, to guard? If anybody's a gatekeeper, I think Kevin would would be the best because he's so uh, sharp and he's such a he, he's wonderful the way he sniffs out baloney you know it just won't get past him and he's so well read mm. and so clever so, uh, i think perhaps um uh we put kevin in goal and let mike uh i tell you charge around up front well, I'll tell you what, I'll go in goal because that's where they put me when I was a kid because I was the tall one that was useless with his oh, okay. feet. Okay, well, that's fine. And, <laughs> and let's, uh, uh, you can uh, put Greg as commanding the defence. Yes. Um, you want Mike up front. I think so. And yeah. who else did you say would be good on the attack? You said. Well, uh, um, I, think, I, I think Nina and um, Patsy... Nightman would be kind of um, up there. They're, they're quite, you know, like that. Certainly, Rod Ellis <laughs> should be <laughs> kept in the background. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Rod Ellis in, in goal. Uh, I'll happily give up that. Position. Well, no, no, no. We don't want those to go. No, no, not 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 a safe enough pair of hands. No, no, no. Who's on with that? I mean, I really. The reason I recommended is it, it that that book. Um, I really don't recommend LS generally. I don't recommend his articles even. And I certainly don't recommend the awful uh, volume of his on SLA. But I just think that one book that he wrote with Shintana is, is, is a good one for, for beginners, really. Mm. Um, uh, okay, well, what about the midfield? Because we've got a few defenders in there. Well, I don't really... You see, the trouble is, I don't really know what all... The, I mean, I know that the number 10 is a striker, scores the goals, and I know, of course, that the goalkeeper <laughs> tries to stop him. But I don't really understand much about the other stuff, so I don't think... The midfield would be, I guess, kind of organising the game and keeping everything flowing and... Ah, uh, yes, well, um, the other ones then. Oh, i tell you who I really um, think wrote probably the best book on language learning is uh, William O'Grady. So perhaps uh, he ought to be there. Right, William okay. O'Grady, how, how Children Learn Language, is it called? Uh-huh. You know that one? Utterly brilliant. From what you say about midfield, he, he'd be good there. Right. Okay. I definitely uh, would like to add William O'Grady's How Children Learn Languages to a recommended list. A okay. superb book. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, that's. I think that's enough. Let's yeah, let's yeah. let's spend the whole uh, hour <laughs> trying to figure out positions. Peter, I hope you're satisfied with that. Maybe next time, if you made it a cricket team, <laughs> it might be able to. Yes, I, I. Now that would be, you know, um, give you yes. a batting lineup or something. Well, I, I, fielding, you know, the gullies and silly mid off and. Uh, Yes. Oh yeah, <laughs> gotta got love the language of. Britain. I have no idea what these positions mean. But I do love the sound of it. Right, another question we got was from Mura in Nava, as who you know. Ah, well, Mura, right? yes. And Mura is asking if your blog publishing finger is getting itchy, and if you're finding it hard to resist the temptation to 
to publish something? No, actually. If it does itch, it, um, it itches to sort of have a go at people. And I've decided I'm just not going to do that. And so I haven't as yet, although I, I got anything exciting, uh, sort of positive or interesting to say, just the usual regrets about how poor the standard of scholarship and 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 creativity and energy is in in English language teaching. So my blog, the new one, was about teacher trainers or teacher educators or however they want to call themselves, um, and it was deliberately critical. My point is that these people, I think, are doing an extremely bad job of mediating between teachers and um, the research going on and they're doing a very bad job in general of training teachers. They're flying all over the world, buggering up the planet, talking really very poorly organized and, and incoherent stuff to teachers. And I've said that and I really, you know, uh, I don't think there's much more negative stuff to be said. If any of them comes out with a big book or a, or a new thing, then uh, certainly I think that would need a response. And who knows, maybe it'd be bloody marvellous, which, which would, would be bloody marvellous if they did. I'm not mm. saying, you know, so that's really the, the, the blog is about um, teacher training. And uh, for the moment, I don't have any interesting stuff apart from our own. Uh, and I will do a blog on TBLT to just uh, remind us where we are. Um, mm. But apart from that, no, uh, um, I have um, not much uh, to say of any interest about it at the moment. Okay, well, uh, thanks for your question, Moura. Uh, yes, Moura. thanks, Moura. And, and um, um, a hello for me. He's a very good guy, Moura. Yeah, he's, he's really good on Corpus stuff as well, and I think he's helped out a lot of people with that. So if you don't follow Moura Nava on Twitter... You should, as yes, of course, definitely. you should follow Peter Parner, ELT Planning, who's, got, who's a materials writer. He does publish stuff, so it's interesting to get a perspective from somebody who writes uh, published materials. Our last question is from another person everyone should follow, is Paul Walsh. And Paul was instrumental in setting up the Teachers as Workers Special Interest Group, which is a whole story in itself. Maybe we'll get Paul on the podcast sometime. Yes, that'd that. be great. And he's asking, why do we think ELT is so resistant to change and criticism? That's a good one. I think it's a culture. It's always been kind of soft. Mm. Certainly in academia, people are much more critical and much more open. doesn't mean you have to be rude and not, you know, just slushy stuff doesn't get picked up on so much. I think there's a low critical antenna out there in ELT. Um, mm. It's kind of, it's all about, you know, oh, <laughs> the joy of teaching and uh, and not, don't be nasty. And, and it just, I, I find it very, very depressing that um, when these jerks get up and talk the nonsense they do, that people applaud and, and, you know, I just can't, 
understand how people can can listen to some of this nonsense that's talked and not think uh, that's not what you know that just just suck it all in so i i think that there's a general lack of intellectual rigor um mm. a general lack of the culture of criticism the culture of critically evaluating stuff uh, maybe they do it when they go to films or or read books and stuff you know um but they don't seem to adopt uh, a sort of critical attitude um the things they're told about their job and i really don't understand it partly of course it isn't the most intellectually challenging that you know english teachers are not academics and they're not super and they're not well, they don't need to be, do they? I mean, it's not well, no, of course they prerequisites. Don't. And they do need to be nice people and people who want to help and stuff like that, I suppose. So, mm. you know, so it's not kind of uh, part of the necessary skills, perhaps. But in any case, these are all sweeping generalizations. There are lots of very critical people. There are uh, those who take a critical view, but it, when you when you look at the top twenty ELT blogs and you see the sort of knitting and football culture of it, you know, there's sort of um, there just doesn't seem to be much edge at all. Now, I, I, I'd be very interested to hear what Paul himself has to say because he's he takes this um, very good sort of postmodern Marxist view where was well, you too, of course, with the. Um, Mm. where cultural stuff is a, is a big part of the analysis. I'm not quite as good at I, you know, I don't quite get it. But that seems to me what it is, just that, you know, there isn't the... It's not expected, it's not encouraged, and um, and I don't know, maybe if you did, you know, it, it, it does make things rather uncomfortable once you start, because, you, you know, once you realise just how awful... Uh, the, the the general situation is perhaps it's better not to you know just just sort of get on with it and do the best you can sort of thing. Sure, yeah. I mean, there are certainly a lot of vested interests, aren't there? And I think when it comes to being critical, um, maybe sometimes people are uh, hesitant to get too deep because in some ways they depend upon the things that they are criticizing. And I could even mention myself and our cooperative, that we are critical, along with you, of a lot of published ELT materials. But at the same time, we need to make a living and we, we, we write such materials and we do work with publishers. Yeah. Um, maybe we, we could mention here the article I sent you, which generated a bit of discussion on Twitter as well by the, is it the Marxist TEFL collective? Yes, Marxist and, TFL. Yeah, talking about Scott Thornbury and I think Scott Thornbury is somebody that you both admire and are critical of, and I, you know I think for valid reasons that you know maybe it's not the best article we could talk about that, but it's certainly true that on the one hand Scott Thornbury is somebody who criticises the industry. The dogma movement was a backlash, I suppose, against published materials and grammar McNuggets and these things. But at the same time, he does seem to perpetuate some of the mediocrity by writing books about CELTA and, 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 and these things. I don't know, maybe quite a lot of fence-sitting and maybe people, people needed to make a living out of this and therefore holding back the criticism to a certain extent. Yes, I think 
obviously the root of the analysis of why we're where we are is an economic uh, one in the political sense, a Marxist one, that what's happened is that ELT is uh, controlled by commercial interests uh, and their goal is, is profit. Now that doesn't make, you know, all people who want to make a profit servants of the devil, but it does mean that more and more ELT has come into the hands of more and more ruthless concerns who, because of the, the state of, um, you know, the, the more and more uh, cutthroat nature of, of global capital, has put the pressure on. And the result is, when you look at the main components of ELT, when you look at the examination system and you look at the materials production and you look at the training and so on they all do <laughs> fit together and they're all packaging a product and they're trying to make their products as marketable as they can be that's why you've got seven levels that's why you've got entrance and exit and and, and all the stuff you have it's all packaged you're here you want to get here three courses two books five cassette and so on and so on mm. the whole damn thing is the result and i'm sure paul walsh would be the first to agree with us um that's really what it comes down to we have sold out uh, educational principles for the convenience of uh, the market. Uh, it, it is the commodification of education. Mm -hmm. And we can see it uh, everywhere, in all across the curriculum, but it is brutal in uh, many parts of the ELT industry, particularly in places like Southeast Asia, Korea, South Korea, and so on. So there, that's that's the first thing, that it is a very, very commercial industry that we're part of. Um, and so the kind of, as you say, those who, like Scott, uh, materials writers and experts and so on, who, who um, are at the top of their profession, um, it is inviting, you know, the end of your career if you, if you shout, if you criticise too much. So Scott... Of course, that's the problem with it. But I, I think personally, he, he's safe. He, he's, he's made a lot of money. Yeah, I would he agree. Must, he's uh, safe, you know, yeah. and then why <laughs> doesn't he speak out now? There's no reason why. And, and anyway, it's, it's utterly contradictory. How on earth can he say all this eloquent stuff about McNuggets and the, the, the appalling nonsense of, of dishing up these these horrible unnutritious bits of language in courses and then write a, a one of the best-selling books on Celta he says oh I'm just you know doing the best I can well it's nonsense it's I really that I just cannot understand why Scott doesn't you know doesn't say Celta you know is is a bad course in all sorts of ways and one of the reasons it's a bad course is the predominant, and which he said himself, um, the predominant use of course books, which he, he condemns. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, his book doesn't say use a course book, but, you know, his book on Celta, the Celta trainer, but, uh, I mean, it, 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 it tacitly acknowledges that that's how things are done. So, yes, I agree with you. Criticism is, is muffled by mm -hmm. considerations of trying to keep your job, 
mm. uh, that which you know one can understand that to, to some extent but i don't think scott has anything to fear from these bugs. you know he's He's made quite a, uh, enough money, for goodness sake. He's quite secure. He's very well known. He's very popular. And I think it would do him, a, you know, especially at his age, for God's sake, you know, come out and just be consistent. Be sure. consistent with, his, with, with the stuff he says um, uh, uh, in, in favour of dogma. Be consistent on that and, and, and stop. Uh, being the bloody vicar of Bray sitting on the fence. I just say this, I, I was not at all impressed with the article by the, the Marxists or whatever they called themselves. Mm -hmm. I thought it, was, it went on and on. It, it wasn't well written. It was very loose and it didn't make any very coherent argument about Scott. There are criticisms to be made of Scott and I think they could have been made a lot more tightly and a lot more succinctly than sure. that article did. I agree. Uh, just You might be amused by this, but Jessica Mackay, uh, someone we both know, yeah. suspected it might have been you in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> well, um, I tried to, I mean, I don't, I, I, said I tried to write better than that. It really was, I think, meandering, self-indulgent and, and not, uh, well, it, it wasn't me. <laughs> no, I, I didn't think It wasn't me, Jessica. And, uh, no. Yeah, I, I said to her, I thought you could write better than that anyway. Thank you. And uh, I, I would doubt you would use or or misuse W.H. Auden in, in the same way. That I that. know. Wasn't that uh, awful? <clears throat> dear, oh, dear. It, it is interesting anyway. And I think when... Yeah. When when you people like you are not publishing at the moment, we're maybe a little bit desperate for <laughs> for critical stuff, and we'll certainly share the article, and people can make up yeah, their own minds. Yeah, sure, yes, it's, yes. Uh, uh, I I was tempted to reply to it and and didn't because well, I couldn't be bothered. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, let's let's get into some stuff yeah. that we didn't have time to talk about last time because last time we briefly mentioned your studies at London School of Economics and the fact that you got chucked out. What happened to get you chucked out of LSE? Yes, I, um, I was there in the 1960s when there was a, a wave of um, sit-ins and protests uh, through the universities of Europe, particularly France, of course, which is the most radical, but a lot of Eng uh, English universities were caught up in it. It was a time of the Vietnamese War. It was a time of tremendous expansion of the capitalist economies. And really, those of us who were at university uh, had the luxury of indulging in radical politics. So we were almost like, you know, before in the 50s when there was still rationing and so on, people were scrabbling around. Uh, but by the 60s, uh, the economy was really sort of full steam ahead. Things were getting much better for, you know, the Macmillan's famous thing, you've never had it so good. Um, mm. Package holidays. That's Harold Macmillan, not Neil Macmillan. Like... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Harold. Yes. So that was the sort of backdrop to a very, very critical set of students who were challenging the congratulatory triumphalist accomplishments of capital 
most of it Marxist. I mean, the Marxist analysis, I think, I think Marx is absolutely right. And in fact, of course, so did Keynes and, and lots of um, perfectly um, now uh, traditional Marxist, uh, sorry, economists. Economists, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, micro and macroeconomics uh, has a Marxist base. But anyway, ours was a much more radical view. We, we were inspired by the young Marx, which was much more sort of um, philosophically orientated towards one's life and one's, uh, one's moral life and solidarity with those who, who weren't doing so well. The idea that, you know, no man is an island, that all this individualistic stuff uh, rather forgot that most people on the planet were living very badly indeed. So those are the sort of focuses of the, the protest. It was about the bad consequences of expanding capitalism in terms of American imperialism, the Vietnamese War, in terms of uh, British and French and German expansion in, uh, of, of their capitalist empires and so on. And of course, internally, uh, in terms of the, the widening gap, not that it's anywhere near as wide as it is now, but the widening gap between the rich and the poor and, and privilege and, and the rest of it, class mm. society. So there we were uh, complaining about all this and, and the um, complaints took the form of um, sit-ins and we, we demanded more say in the running of the university. And, uh, of course, they told us to piss off. And we kept up the pressure. We also said we wanted not to have the pension fund investing in certain companies that were selling arms and that sort of stuff. So we made a lot of demands about what they should do with uh, their investments, what they should do with the structure of the university and how they should alter the the actual content of the university courses uh, and all of those of course were rejected and finally they put up a load lots of gates all over the university sliding metal iron concertina like gates that folded back into the wall but that could at any moment if any disturbances broke out be suddenly drawn across the wall so mm. as to isolate anybody who tried to sit in. Mm -hmm. So there were about 40 of these gates all the way through seven or eight different buildings, parts of the London School of Economics. Uh, and we uh, issued an ultimatum to them saying, take them down or we'll take them down. Uh, and they didn't take them down. So then um, there were on one day, all the gates, I'll use the passive voice here, <laughs> all, all the gates were bashed down they were just smashed with uh, uh, sledgehammers and, and so on causing considerable oh the, uh, sorry the first there, were, there was a sit-in oh no no the, the, no the sequence was we bashed the gates down um, and the cops came in and arrested lots of people including me I, uh, I was fingered in an identity parade by Professor Watkins, head of the philosophy department. Let, let's just clarify the meaning of fingered that you. <laughs> well, I was we, 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 here. rather stupidly after after the gates had been destroyed. Everybody went to the bar, which was in the basement, and so they a thousand cops arrived, 
and uh, and then circled the building and we all had to file out from the basement up through uh, the hall into the street and in the hall there were lines of outraged academic staff who had witnessed the gates being bashed down and we all had to walk past to file past this um this sort of identity parade and as when i appeared the professor watkins shouted hysterically that's him uh oh. and in that sense he fingered me he, he identified me as being one holding a a, a crowbar pickaxe and let's just be clear you were falsely <laughs> accused of fingered <laughs> It was ridiculous. Um, everybody was lying, honestly. Uh, and, and what was so funny at the trial was that uh, Watkins, the head of the philosophy department, was my, the chief prosecution witness against me. I, at one point, said that I was in Brighton, <laughs> uh, which I realised was a bit sort of silly. So I said, no, I didn't do it. I was there, but I didn't do it. And then I think Watkins got up and uh, the prosecuting counsel said to him, now, um, did you see... Yes, he said, that's him. I was standing in the, you know, where the accused stand. That's him, he said. And um, they said, are you sure it's him? After all, he's got long hair and, you know, he looks just like any other student. <laughs> and Watkins says... Well, it all depends what you mean by sure. <laughs> and he started waffling on his philosophical sort of <laughs> stuff about epistemological certainty and, uh, you know, could one Gee, really was, be sure yeah. of anything and all this bollocks. And then he, <laughs> uh, and, um, he, he, he messed up. He was just the worst witness possible, you know, because he wouldn't give a straight answer. Not because he wasn't sure, but because he was a sort of silly philosopher. <laughs> um, uh, and that helped me. In the end, the judge said, I'm, I, I'm very worried about the case of Jordan. But um, he said, I don't think the evidence is solid enough to uh, warrant a conviction. So I was found not guilty. Uh, when, when he, I was found not guilty, <laughs> all my friends were in court and they all booed. <laughs> <laughs> shouted, miscarriage of justice, send him down, send him to Australia, <laughs> shame, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I my unblemished uh, record was uh, intact, and uh, <laughs> so it was all, the, the, in fact, it was a very serious um, business, really, the, of the university, we closed the university down, we, we occupied it after after the trial, we, we did a sit-in and we occupied LSE and we brought it to a close for over a month. And we also occupied the University of London Union. You know, we, we made quite a fun. It was actually, when I, now when I look back, it was terribly indulgent. Uh, we were playing at it, you know. I was, uh, I have to say, I knew it was mischief and um, I was not ever convinced in the way that these appalling Trotskyists were, that we were some kind of vanguard leading the working class to a, right. overthrow the state. It was, it was fairly, it was serious in some ways that there were obvious um, 
disgraceful things going on at the university and they needed drawing people's attention to. But I have to say, when looking back at it, that it wasn't, um, it was nothing like as, as inventive or as imaginative or indeed as class, um, you know, it was, it was very middle class. What they did in France was far more so and far more lasting. And, and, uh, and of course, the situationists there and the, and the things they did in that bond and all over the place were much more impressive than anything that happened in England. Sure, but okay, you were found not guilty, you were cleared of criminal charges. Yes. But the university still took action against you. Didn't yes, they? they took action against me, not criminal. Uh, civil. Uh, they they got a restraining order, uh, so I wasn't allowed to go within a, a a mile of the university or something like that. Six of us were refused permission to to use the university or go anywhere near it, and um, that meant that of course I was working. Uh, I'd finished my degree and I was going on to a, a doctorate in the. Uh, scientific method, uh, well, the philosophy department, which, which specialised in the philosophy of science. What was, what was your degree, uh, Duff? Can I just ask that? Yeah, my degree was a BSc Econ. Um, I, it was like um, it was a Bachelor of Science and Economics, um, a bit like at uh, Oxford and Cambridge, they do that general degree called a PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics. Well, the LSE version of that was a BSc Econ, where you had to do economics, you had to do politics, and then you could specialise, and the specialisations included anthropology, law, economics, of course, in more fact, and one that was particularly uh, only available after the 1962 um, postgraduates was uh, the philosophy of science, and that's the one that I was so interested in, because it had the, the Karl Popper, Feyerabend, uh, Lakatos, and it was extraordinary. The, the finest philosophy of science department in the whole of the planet. It was, it was magnificent, thrilling intellectually. It was absolutely wonderful, and I loved it. Now, one, one question, because we know that in France at the time, there were intellectuals who, you know, professors at the universities who, who got involved in the, in the protests. What were people like Popper uh, and the people you mentioned doing? Popper, complete bloody copper. I mean, he, Popper, uh, if you read his Open Society and the Enemies, it's an appalling book, mm. um, he, he describes it as his um, contribution to the war effort. It's got the most absurd um, view of Marx that one could possibly hope to read. Popper, very right-wing, extremely right-wing, extremely yep. traditional, um, and so he was appalled, and and um, but, and so was Watkins, the one who fingered me. And the, there, there were a few people. I remember Lakatos actually was all right. Lakatos came and said, "I saw you," he said, "but I didn't say anything." <laughs> and one or two others, uh, the professor of the law department, can't remember his name, Professor Griffith, he was one of the very few who actually stood up for the students and offered his help in defending one or two of them because he was a lawyer. But I would say fewer than 5% of the staff gave any support whatsoever to the students, which, you know, I can... <laughs> Partly understand because it was, you know, a lot of bollocks, really. I mean, I remember they 
we just had these ridiculous um, uh, marches and protests, you know, when, when we'd block, block the traffic off, just, you know, interrupt everybody's lives. There was this banner that said, <laughs> from Marx, uh, had a quote from Marx, 18th Brumian, previous philosophers have tried to understand the world. The yeah. point, however, is to change it. And that was a bloody banner, you know, it wasn't uh, support coal miners in their strike or, or give pensioners more money or, right, right. you know, uh, sack. It was this absurdly obtuse philosophical fucking wankering. Posturing, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It was a lot of that going on. And I can quite understand how a lot of the academics thought it was absurd and, and the public too, you know. I mean, uh, I used to hitchhike around and I, occasionally people would say, you know, you got anything? And I said, yes, I... And they'd say, you know, you bloody pampered fool. And, and, and they, they certainly had a point. Uh, it's worth, uh, I think you mentioned to me before, just the, the percentage of people that could go to university at that time in the UK, and I imagine elsewhere as well. It was a tiny percentage of the population. When I went to LSE, uh, less than 3% of uh, the population went to university mm. to do a degree. There were a lot of tech colleges, but at people actually doing honours undergraduate degrees, yes, less than 3%. And I imagine very few working class people. And yes, um, very few working class people in that university population. It was yeah. very privileged. And the other thing, extraordinary thing about it was it was all free for, even for me, my father rich. Um, so I didn't get a uh, maintenance grant, of course, and quite right too, uh, because it was means tested. But there were no tuition fees at all. And for those whose parents weren't uh, well off, um, they got a full grant. And the grant was enough to live perfectly well. And, so, and housing benefit, right? And can, oh, yes, including, yeah. including your housing, everything, everything. Yeah. So the, the problem was, of course, that although uh, the universities themselves, you know, were, if you got whatever qualifications they wanted... They would give you a place if you, you know, mind you, those days there were interviews too. Um, a friend of mine told me that uh, I went to a, a posh a private school, but he told me that when he was at Cambridge, he met this guy who was from a secondary modern school, working class. His father was, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were poor, uh, but he got, a, he, he got a scholarship. He got an open scholarship to St. John's, Cambridge. He hated it, uh, and he actually tried to kill himself because he just felt so totally and utterly out of out of out of his depth. All these, you know, super confident middle class people there, uh, mm. and upper class people as well, of course, especially at um, St John's. Mm. So yes, it was it was very very um, privileged, and I don't know. Uh, to me, I think you know half the pot population now I think it's just about 50% population go to university and I'm really not sure that that's um, a good thing or not especially when you look at some of the you know media studies and rubbish that they do I, I really um, wonder yeah, at the people doing literature degrees and all that terrible 
Yeah, absolutely. You have people like you studying Buddy Foucault. I mean, what the hell's the point of that? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I simply mean that I don't think they thought through very well the implications of having so many people at university. And I'm, I'm, of course, everybody should have the opportunity to do whatever the hell they want. But I don't think uh, academic life is for 50% of a population. And I think it's a false aspiration. Well, of course, the trouble is that it means um, now going to university is nothing to do with intellectual aspiration. It's about getting a job. Sure. Uh, and, and for that reason, of course, I wouldn't, <laughs> I quite understand. But I, I mean, the whole, I'm not right. criticizing anybody that goes to university. Of course, I'm not. And I, and, you know, and I'm not saying, I think uh, the whole structure of society is bonkers. Um, and I think in a, in a just, well organized society, 50% of the people, population wouldn't want to spend three years of their life doing serious academic work. Well, no, maybe if we if we valued uh, non-academic study and, and work as, as much as we do academic, it, it wouldn't be the case. That's well, exactly, it's, it's, you know, if it's real academic work, um, you know, proper academic work, I, I doubt 10% of the population are interested in, where the hell should they be? Mm. Damn sight better things for most people to do than be reading obtuse books. But at the same time, these, yeah, these uh, top institutions remain... Bastions of privilege, you know, maybe yeah. the proportion of working class people going to these places hasn't changed that much at all. So has it not? I'm, <clears throat> I'm not up with the statistics on that. I, I thought that they had, I'm sure they're much better than they were. I'm sure it's better, but there was an interesting piece a couple of years ago. I can't remember who it was. There's a girl who'd done very well at school from a working class background, and she got an interview at Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember, and uh, she just talked about how in intimidating it was to go into this august very traditional institution with the architecture and to to do the interview in an environment she was just not used to yeah whereas perhaps you know for people who have been to some of the more select schools it's more of a breeze for them of course yeah it probably has changed but there's something residual there that uh, i think maintains this imbalance anyway that's another Topic. One other thread I'd like to go yeah. back to or to pull on again. We talked a little bit about Mick Jagger, the fact <laughs> that you'd organised fundraising concerts for which you'd managed to get Rolling Stones and The Who and other people to play at. What were you raising funds for? Do you want to go into that a little yes. bit? Yes. This was partly they, um, the London School of Economics, the, the board of directors, whatever they're called, the, the Senate, decided to have civil proceedings against six students, uh, Americans and Australians, and they want to throw them out of the country because they took part. They organised all the disruption. And so we formed a defence committee for them, of course, absurdly expensive. Um, If you go to high courts with this sort of stuff, you need... A, a, a solicitor and then a barrister, junior barrister, senior barrister. It's mad uh, amount of money. So we collected money for them, and that was the first one. And then there was another one when which I was involved in. I, I was involved with the first one quite a lot, and for that one, I don't think we did any concerts, 
we just sort of, you know, went and asked rich people for money. And we got enough money, but unfortunately, uh, we lost the damn lot. They all got thrown out of the country. Then there was another case of the Angry Brigade. The Angry Brigade were a group of so-called anarchists who put small bombs, I'm talking about two pounds of a kilo of uh, some low-grade explosive, in places like Bieber's, which was a, a boutique, and other symbols of the swinging London spectacular society as they saw it. Mm-hmm. So they, they, and I think they put a, a, a bomb outside the door of a politician's house. They put six bombs in all. That nobody was hurt by any of them, but they could have been, of course, although you'd have to be sitting on it for it to you know, kill you. Anyway, they arrested 10 people, and we knew, at least I knew, because I, I knew them all, and I used to talk to them and... and uh, set up all night saying what madness it was and they should stop immediately. When they got arrested, there were 10 people arrested, um, including Stuart Christie, the wonderful guy who um, came to Spain with a bomb hidden in his kilt. And <laughs> he, said, he said, I thought they'd never look. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's the first place Spanish people want to look. Where he, where yes, of course. Them. That's what everybody said to him. Uh, and he was sentenced to 30 years in uh, prison in, in Spain. Very good book about it. Uh, they, they, he finally let him out after, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years. Um, he did some marvellous stuff while he was in prison, organising uh, a hospital, in fact. Anyway, he was one of them who they accused of doing these bombs, and he was, he, he was I know, I, I knew him, I, I, he, he was innocent, didn't do it. Neither did uh, four others. So I, uh, and they needed good lawyers. So that's when I formed the Angry Brigade um, Defence Fund. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't. I, um, a group did uh-huh. without me. I then went on my own back because I happened to know some uh, rich people. And incidentally, the, the, the Defence Committee for the Angry Brigade uh, didn't like me. They... <laughs> I was referred to as a bourgeois dilettante anarchist adventurist, which I <laughs> always remembered with some pride. Um, yeah, you should have that as your calling card. <laughs> so I got a few people together and um, who were, you know, and I got lots of money out of them. And, and I went straight to the best defence lawyer, uh, who was Bernie Simons, and um, got the best barrister, Mike Mansfield, who now is very famous, and they agreed to defend these people. So we needed more money, and that's when, it wasn't me, it was a guy called John, John Gravel, wonderful man, organised a concert at the Roundhouse to collect money. And uh, at that concert, there were the Rolling Stones, the Who, the family, if you remember them, and, uh, and a few other very big acts, and it was a tremendous concert. They drove a Harley Davidson through a giant jelly, I remember one. It was a wonderful <laughs> concert. Um, and that got really tons of money. Uh, and we got them off. It was wonderful. The police were really pissed off. 
but we got them off, uh, and quite right too, because they, you know, they really were. They were you know, the others who, who I'm afraid were guilty, ruined their lives. They went to prison for 25 years, wow. uh, but at least we got them off. So right, and this is the Angry Brigade, and uh, I think there's a a video, a documentary on YouTube about all this. Oh really? Really interesting. I, I think I'd sent it to you, but we'll link to it in the program notes if people want more background on. On these it was a very interesting, again, it was rather the same, they were very middle class, women, uh, five of them. It was kind of hopelessly idealistic, hopelessly utopian, you know, just dreamy, blurry bollocks. And, and, and it destroyed them, their lives, of course, and their families and their friends and all the rest of the awful stuff that goes on with that. Um, and uh, utter nonsense, uh, but it's certainly an interesting page in in you know sort of left wing uh, revolt, and 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 I would say in very many ways a good thing, good good example of how not to behave radically. <laughs> sure, but if you if you compared your politics with theirs, you were more in the anarchist camp. And, yes. And how, how did they describe themselves? In- uh, they, they, they described themselves, uh, they were very influenced, so was I, incidentally, and I was pardoned for a little while, by the situation as international, right. um, which was essentially, as you know, um, from Belgium. Guy, Guy Debord, no? Yes, Guy Debord was, um, uh, Lottremont were one of their heroes, of course. They were uh, very, very interesting. I thoroughly recommend people to read the, the Society of the Spectacle, uh-huh. uh, Guy Debord, and the everyday life of uh, student life. Um, they were very active in the 1968 Paris uh, stuff that went on in the in Sorbonne and other universities and spread, actually had a pretty big effect on you know France itself, not just the university. So yes, they were their own. There was a there was a group called King Mob in London that I uh, used to go and, and meet in a pub. They were they they published a couple of magazines that the Wise Brothers, David and Michael Wise, absolutely brilliant. There were so many clever people there. So they were they were they'd read Marx, of course, and they'd read uh, the anarchist Kropotkin and um, and so on. But they were the, the, the sort of against Marx. I mean, of course, late Marx was far too deterministic and and and, and silly. And what's more, uh, led to this awful vanguard Trotskyist sort of thing of you know Leninism, right. which Marx, of course, one of Marx's famous statements is, "I am not a Marxist." Um, and certainly that kind of left wing, you know, the Trotskyist SLL and the people now in um, the, the, the left wing of the Labour Party momentum, uh-huh. there's shades of Trotskyists in there. And their problem is that they, they really think they know where we should all be going and they think it's their duty to lead uh, the working class. It's a vanguard party. They're the vanguard. They know everything and they're going to take people to the promised land, which is, of course, hugely dangerous and, and wrong. Um, so they were, a, the, the Angry Brigade were a bit more in that direction. They, they'd seen it sort of thing, and they, but they were also 
I mean, they were, they were totally muddled, you know. They, 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 they hadn't read Marx terribly well, hadn't read anything terribly well. They were just sort of romantic, idealistic um, clams, unfortunately. No real uh, substance there. I was fairly close to the sits. I agreed with their analysis of the spectacular society, which I think is brilliant. And I was and remain uh, an anarchist in the sense that I, I think that we should be able to organise ourselves without uh, needing the apparatus of, of the state. I think any, you know, the state is uh, against, uh, is anti-libertarian and uh, prevents freedom and we don't need people to act on our behalf or to um, tell us what to do. So we get into a row with those who uh, want to promote, for example, the welfare state. And that, that's, that's an interesting issue because today, if Corbyn, if it weren't Corbyn, if, it, if there were a group who were properly organised and properly, you know, and the left of the Labour Party and wanted to bring back uh, the National Health Service as it was, and that, I, I think I would probably support them. So it's a difficult... If you're an anarchist, you, you know, you, and you say we're against the state, yes, we are, we're against authority, yes, we are, we think we should organise among ourselves, yes, that's right. But, in a, and Chomsky's quite good at, on this, the, 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 the purists say, don't make the cage comfortable. Right. It's a bit like, um, you know, Islamic extremists. Um, uh-huh. You know, to, to the extent that you ameliorate the, the harshness of capitalism, you make it harder to fight. People sort of, you know, if you... Sure. I think that's bullshit. Uh, and I think that if there if the were party that said, tomorrow we're going to do away with private education and we're going to nationalise all the fucking hospitals and so on, I would, I would support that and I would get out on the street and bang a drum for it, even okay. though it is reformist in, in, sure. a, in a pure sense. Sure, so sure. that's my sort of theoretical position is certain, to oppose any kind of uh, state structures and so on and I, I, I've never voted for a, any parliamentary party but I think on the other, especially as the way things are going at the moment, a tactical vote, I mean, not, not, not in the mess we're in, in, in or they're in, in England, uh, sorry, in the UK, I, I, I wouldn't go near that. But I can imagine a situation, for example, in 1945, you know, after the war, when there was a vote for, for uh, Churchill or for the Conservatives or for the Labour Party, I think I would have voted, voted Labour. Um, you know, so it's, it's, um, uh, one has to be pragmatic to a certain extent. Just to tie all this together, this involvement with the Angry Brigade, even though it was peripheral and more as in terms of fundraising to, to help, uh, innocent people uh, escape uh, punishment. This came at a cost for you, didn't it? I mean, you, you were looked at by the police, weren't you? Did this, did this lead to you leaving the country? Yes. Well, they knew me already from the LSE days. The cops I'm talking about, the special branch. The special branch were a very big part of the London Metropolitan Police. And they had a section of it was devoted to radical politics. Now, of course, terrorist squads and all sorts. There weren't then. 
But they did have uh, a numerous, well-funded department that were keeping tags on all those who they thought were uh, likely to be politically disruptive, uh, including, of course, uh, the Angry Brigade who actually, you know, put a few bombs around. They did have a bomb squad. Um, and so when I was involved in... 1968 in the LSE stuff, I uh, was already on their books. But when I organized the defense of the six uh, LSE people who were thrown out, I got more attention. And then when I was involved in the Anger Brigade case, I was also involved in IRA cases where uh, I went to the Old Bailey a, a lot. I, I, I worked for Bernie Simons as a solicitor's clerk. Uh-huh. And so I was in, involved in uh, IRA cases. Again, the people that Bernie defended were innocent, and he got two or three of them off. One or two innocent people went, went down. So because of that, then I had my own cop following me, which was um, quite a, amusing. And um, I... <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> used to do that business on the on the underground, you know. You get in a get on the tube, and you you know where your guy is. So you wait till the doors are just about closing, and then you zip out and leave him sitting on the wave at him as he as he carries on his journey, and you're standing on the platform. So yes, well, I mean that was kind of amusing, but it was uncomfortable. And I actually got a few warnings from people saying they're going to mess you about. Occasionally, they would raid our flat. And we always had Professor um, Griffith, this law guy, I told you, mentioned him. He uh, helped people in 1968. Well, we had his, okay, and he used to have his little uh, Lotus car and he'd zoom round as fast as he could to witness the search because obviously the idea was they would plant you. They were, oh, look, what's this? And they'd pull out a great big lump of dope or, or something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and off you'd go to prison. So that, you know, they used to do that quite regularly, raid the flat at night and bang on, you know. And, and so it became increasingly uncomfortable and as I say, I got these warnings from people in, you know, who I, I, I trusted. They said, they're, they're going to fit you up. You'll get a, a prison sentence. They'll, they'll get you for something. If it's not drugs, it'll be something. Right. Uh, and so I felt sufficient. And then Bernie Simons, even, uh, the solicitor, said, why don't you just go away for a bit, you know, until uh, they find something more interesting to... Uh, spend their time on so I did I um, I actually uh, left the, I, I, I wasn't very happy there in any case because my study I, 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 that was all buggered couldn't do any of that and Thatcher was <laughs> in power and the whole thing was terribly gloomy so I I left yes so it did it did have a, a bit of a, a cost yes when did Thatcher come in 78 Thatcher was she that late well, in that case, I'd already left far right. before she came in. I didn't re- maybe that's why I didn't come back. Um, <laughs> I, I thought Thatcher's influence, well, she was the home secretary, maybe, you know, Thatcher, Thatcher, milk sure. snatcher. Maybe, maybe she yeah. was already, uh, in any case, I think 
the 70s, things were, well, you, you would know, uh, already getting pretty bad for a lot of people. There were... I think, yeah, I think even the milk snatching thing, I would remember because I remember my uh, milk that we were given at school, in primary school, being stopped. Ah, really? And uh, that was the early 80s. Oh, was but, it? Um, that's my understanding that that's where the Margaret Thatcher baby milk snatcher came from. But I might be wrong. Maybe she snatched some other baby's milk before well, that. She was Home Secretary, wasn't she? Um, yeah. I, I, I can't quite remember. In the early 70s, who, the, who was there? Who would it have been? Well, in any case, I, I went to Yugoslavia for a while. And then I came back, and I was back in England. That's what happened. I was back in England in, like, 1975, perhaps, to mm. 1979, or maybe, you know, and it was right at the end of the 70s that I, we finally, I and Judy, came, came to Spain, in fact. We, we hadn't, it wasn't our intention to live here, but uh, forever, sort of thing. But, um, yeah. We finally, we, we, we said, right, that's enough of that, and, and left England with the intention of not coming back for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think by the time we finally made that decision, things had got progressively worse, and I think uh, Thatcher policies, that, that, that general conservative reaction to the decline of the UK industrially and so on, was, mm. was in full swing. So maybe we've got a combination of uh, Special Branch and Margaret Thatcher to thank for the fact that you actually <laughs> came to Spain and got into English language teaching. I mean, I, I got into language teaching really was beer money, you know. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't take it. I, I, I was Once I started, I, I, I really liked it. And I was in a fantastic school, as I've said so many times. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the work. But it was pretty light, you know. I mean, it, it was hardly academically demanding and it, was, it, was, it wasn't time consuming. I mean, you know, we had um, 20 weeks holiday or more. And, and we worked, I don't know, 30 hours a week, maybe. Mm. So, and, and we earned incredibly good money. And Spain was just ridiculously cheap. Mm. So the whole thing was just marvellous, you know. Really interesting people, not academics at all, but very interesting people, a lovely teaching environment, all sorts of exciting things going on, you know, people, you know, doing all sorts of interesting things. So I'm very lucky. I, I arrived in Spain when Spain was... I'm so happy to have lived through that post-Franco era. Uh, it was joyful. It was it was superb. You really came during the transition, as they call it, from the, yeah. from the Franco regime into democracy. Wonderful. It, mm -hmm. The whole thing was absolutely superb. I, I loved it. I loved Barcelona in those days. I don't think it's so hot now, but um, in those, in, it was just... Bloody hot, I can tell you that. <laughs> yes, it was hot. I loved the heat. You know, I can't stand cold. And I loved... You know, just, just, I didn't realise until I lived in Spain how, how much the grey 
backdrop of English weather had affected me. You know? mm. um, it, <laughs> uh, it really is quite, you know, every time I go back, you go back to, I go to Leicester and, you know, the drizzle and the grey and the, and the cold and the damp. And you just think, when you wake up in the morning in a bright blue sky, and, uh, you know, and you walk out the door and there's buzz of gorgeous life going on in the streets. Um, sure. it, 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 it made a tremendous difference to me. And I, 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 you know. Anyone listening who uh, thinks Jeff's a grumpy, curmudgeonly, <laughs> yeah. critical mourner should imagine what he'd be like <laughs> if he was back in England. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's true, actually. I was much grumpy. <laughs> uh, well, I, I really, I got very bad. Well, you know, you wake up in a bad mood, uh, you know. And so yes, it's true. <laughs> I'm glad I, I live. I, I love this place. Um, it's, it's we've had a marvelous life here, and I've got so much to thank them all for. Uh, it's been tremendous. That's it for this episode. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks to Jeff for sharing with us these fantastic memories of what must have been really fascinating times both in London and in Spain. And we hope you can join us for the next episode of the SLB podcast when we'll be chatting to Mike Long about his version of task-based language teaching and his politics as well, which I think are less well-known by the ELT community. Take care, until next time. Cheerio.